Welcome to Pouring Over Pages, a podcast of words and wine. I'm Alexa. And I'm Maritza. Let's get ready to get lit on a literature. Yay! I always clap for, for some reason. You're our live studio audience. <laughs> well, first of all, excuse any tea sipping sounds. We are in a cozy, cozy cottage right now in upstate New York, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in another episode in a popping off the pages yes, episode. We're at Glen Hollow in the Finger Lakes, the cutest Airbnb that has its own waterfall and and beautiful english garden and and meditation room yeah and you name it hot tub hot tub um lots of cute quaint and woodsy things yeah it's gorgeous it's 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 the perfect getaway when you've been in the city for a little too long way too long and and as soon as you drive up it feels like you are entering the pages of a storybook a hundred percent. It's a fairy tale. So we are going to talk a little bit about that later on, but we did just want to give you a sense of where we are, where we're recording. We've had a chance to spend the whole week here and really kind of take it all in, spend some time reading, spend some time reflecting and just really kind of slow down and, you know, just think about ourselves, our podcast, you know, the books that we want to read and just like really giving ourselves a little, a little moment of, of, of leisure. Yeah. And this area in particular that we are in upstate New York ties perfectly to the book today, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger by Rebecca Traster. It really does. It's perfect. So we, we knew that we were coming here and we chose this book for this particular moment, right? So that we could come here. We're in upstate New York. We had a chance to go to Seneca Falls, the, the, the birthplace really of the women's rights movement. And so we chose Good and Mad because we didn't want to really do a historical book. We wanted mm-hmm. to do something more contemporary that we feel our listeners are going to be more interested in. And then of course, nod to that history as we always do. But Good and Mad is just this really fantastic, really, really just... <sighs> enraging (laughs) enraging book um that came out in uh, 2018 and the premise of it is that in the united states we're not really taught about the ways in which women's anger has fueled social movements justice you know progressed us forward as a nation and so we really should be taught that history and it also talks a little bit about the Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. um, you know, election and what happened there, how the media covered it, Harvey Weinstein, Me Too, um, the potential overturning of Roe, right? Because this was, as I said, published in 2018. So what a Donald Trump presidency would mean to women. And of course, a lot of that came true as we as we all knew that it would. <laughs> we all lived. <laughs> so it's something that we all knew was going to happen. And mm-hmm. people treated us like we were fucking crazy and then here we are now with less rights than our grandmothers but alas (laughs) alas here we are and luckily to to pair our rage with is some great wine from Hosmer Winery in the Finger Lakes uh this episode is actually uh, like a new brand new concept here we actually had a great tour an excellent talk with Julia Hoyle she's the winemaker at Hosmer and she got took some time to sit down with us chat you know 
life, wine journey, inclusion, women badassery. So you guys will hear our interview with her later on, which is really exciting. Yeah. So that was that was a real highlight for me. I mean, she's so young and she has so this incredible position. And I, I think it just it, it really says a lot about what this region is is all about and how, you know, that kind of progressive politics also affects people's everyday lives. But mm-hmm. we'll we'll get we to will that. Get there. <laughs> so in the introduction of Good and Mad, this kind of sums up the book, in my opinion. It says, in the United States, we have never been taught how non-compliant, insistent, furious women have shaped our history and our present, our activism and our art. We should be. Mm-hmm. That's really what this book is about. And I think that for us, it was also a really cathartic read. I think it was something that really made us kind of think about and reflect on the fact that we too have been really angry yeah. and that we have always been taught that, that that's something bad, mm-hmm. right? That women being angry is somehow a reflection of the worst of us. Yeah. And that being angry makes us unlikable. It makes us freaks. It makes us ugly. It makes us crazy, unwanted, mm-hmm. crazy, all the things that anybody would be afraid <laughs> to, to be or to be considered, right? So the fact that that's the way that anger is sold to women or portrayed, I think it just goes to show and, and, and proves the point of the book, which is that the reason that women's anger has to be silenced is because it's just very simple. They know that when furious, non-compliant women come together, there's a chance for change. Most definitely. And that's what happened here in Seneca Falls. Exactly. So we actually went to Seneca Falls, as I said, yesterday. Yeah. And it was such an emotional experience for the both of us. It was really, it was crazy. And and because we've been on this kick for the past couple of months, at least, maybe even years, just thinking about like what we're taught in school versus what we're not taught. It was just amazing to see that I was in there really emotional. I was moved. But at the same time, I was also thinking like, we're only thinking about 1920 when white women were given the Mm -hmm. right to vote, right? Like this is not the end all be all. This is not, oh, 1920, all women could vote. Yay. Everyone's got, you know, their, their rights now to, to, to share their opinion and, and, and to do so at the ballot box. That's absolutely not the case. Right. And reading about like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and how she was obviously such a powerhouse, but at the same time, she was trying to curtail the rights of black people, right? Because she had this sort of bitterness and the movement became divided. And so you have to take these people for, for who they were in their time. And I'm, it's, it's hard because you, I don't think you can judge something that happened yesterday with a lens of today. No, not all. But you can also still acknowledge that that was wrong, right? Sure. You can do both. You can, you know, I, I think that we've gotten used to that, especially me as someone who studied art history and history, you know, like artists that I love, I look back on and I'm like, oh, man, that was a shitty person, but I love their work. And exactly. so you have to find this, like, you have to be able to compartmentalize that and still acknowledge what was wrong. Most definitely. And and one of the takeaways for me, going to uh, the visitor center over there and, and seeing all the history was, you know, Frederick Douglass was part of the women's rights movement trying to get franchisement and being able to vote. And he was up there with, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the whole crew, like fighting for the same thing, but that once black men got the right to vote, it totally changed the playing field. He's like, well, 
it's okay because you guys have your husband still to represent you. Right. I can't do anything with, with, you know, I am myself. My wife definitely isn't going to have, you know, black women definitely aren't going to have those rights, but at least you have your husband to vouch for you, to vote for you, all these things. And that's kind of what drove the wedge. And then Elizabeth Cady Stanton went like, complete complete left the complete opposite she really wanted another direction another direction and really and i and i get it at the time it's kind of like you have to look out for yourself and for your own interests but that's just part of the patriarchal society like getting us to see those differences in our own interests and like divide us from from supporting the greater good and that's always a tactic, isn't it? You know, if you divide groups of people, it's much easier to maintain the status quo. And we're, we know we're talking about action. We're talking about fight. But I actually want to start this conversation with the opposite. I want to talk about inaction. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about, I'm, I'm sort of going to go in the order of the themes within the book, or at least the book, the, the themes that I thought were interesting within the book in that order. So one of the first things that Rebecca Tracer talks about is, of course, Clinton's historic oh, yeah. campaign, right? Yeah. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was this concept of how we were convinced into inaction. Mm-hmm. How many times were we told that there was no way on God's green earth that Donald Trump could win the presidency? <laughs> so many times. How many people stayed home because they knew, knew, in quotes, <laughs> that she had it in the bag? How many people refused to vote because they claimed not to like either candidate, right? And so there's this kind of interesting moment in the book where Rebecca Traster says to us, Americans who might have exerted more energy to oppose Trump or support Clinton, especially white women, and we'll talk about Mm -hmm. them, were goaded into inaction by the assurance that sexism and racism were things of the past Mm. and to work themselves up about either would look silly, would be unnecessary exertions on behalf of an imperfect candidate. So I have a lot of <laughs> we have a lot to issues there. with this. Um, this is exactly it, right? We saw the same thing after President Obama's, you know, moment in the White House that parts of, of, of the Voting Rights Act were, were stripped because of the optics, right? Like, oh, well, we've had a black president, so how much do we really need these protections? And all it did was cause us to go backward. And now it's actually a lot harder for people of color to vote, et cetera. So this idea that like you getting worked up about sexism, you getting worked up about Hillary Clinton being treated unfairly by the media. And we're not sitting here like standing her. We're just, this is just how the media portrayed her, right? Our feelings of her aside, we were basically convinced in a way that our anger would be silly because- if there's a woman running for president, then obviously all of the problems are solved. Mm-hmm. If a woman can run, then she can win. And that's just on the American public. And you know what? We've solved it. We've solved we've solved sexism. Yeah, that's good enough. Get she the ran. fuck out of here. <laughs> that's my issue with that, is that we were basically told that it didn't really matter anymore. That as long as there's a possibility of a woman candidate, that a lot of these issues have been solved. That for me was a really, really tough pill. Actually, I didn't swallow it. It was not a tough pill to swallow. I didn't swallow it. I just don't believe that we should be falling for that kind of trap. And so that was one of the moments in the book for me that I thought, okay, I'm really going to like this book. That was only like 25 pages in and I was like, okay, she's hitting me right where it hurts. Most definitely. Yeah. And I really was fascinated by her description of the media, like how they depicted Hillary versus Trump and like the coverage 
that they would give Trump. Like, yeah, he's crazy, but they didn't really go in on him as much as they did Hillary talking about her emails, talking about her likability, talking about how shrill her voice is, how angry she looked, how, how not angry. And then of course, bringing in Bill into the equation, like if that has any reflection on her. So looking back at that, I mean, when you're living it in the moment, you don't, I can see it as much because you're like, this is the news. They're just reporting on the facts. Right. But it's not. There's a very tainted view on each side. And also it's this gender bias that men, the male reporters don't even know that they have. And the female reporters don't even right. know that they have, that they're putting into their reporting, even just talking about the women's march, which we'll get to later. Yes. Sure, like that it's just, it, it really laid it out for me in a clear way that that astonished me and, and kind of made me feel really bad yeah. about everything. Yeah. I mean, like the, you mentioned the women's March, that moment where in the book, Rebecca Traster is talking about Chuck Schumer being interviewed mm-hmm. and the reporter is like, well, did you hear anything at the women's March that made you uncomfortable? Right. Like this idea <laughs> that like we can't make men uncomfortable. And we've also been conditioned to believe that because for example, when a man is accused of sexual harassment, or let's say, let's use the Me Too movement as an example, women still, I mean, even I'm guilty of this. I, I acknowledge this, that women are still like, oh, but you know, like what's going to happen to him and his family? This mm-hmm. is us taking a, a paycheck away from him if he were to get fired. Am I, am I sure I saw what I saw? Yeah. Am I sure I interpreted that the way that it was intended instead of thinking about yourself as the main character in that situation. Mm -hmm. Was I uncomfortable? Yes, I was. Did this man abuse me, whatever, touch me, whatever? Yes, he did. And that needs to be the anchor. That needs to be the way that we move forward. But we still were so conditioned to think about the well-being of men that we even answer to their bad behavior. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what you were saying about Hillary and Bill. She was forced to answer not only to his personal indiscretions which were bad enough but also to his policy yeah as though she had any she had anything to do with anything to do with that i mean last time i checked she wasn't the vice president or fucking vice president or you know what i mean so it's just like it's really frustrating because we see that all the time when senator al franken was also those pictures that came out of him like trying to grab or pretending to grab some lady's chest And all the women senators were being asked about his behavior and trying to answer to his behavior. And I just think, I don't want to be put in a position like that. That is not a position I ever need to be in. And so women, I think we need to kind of learn to step out of that. And if Mm -hmm. that question comes our way, it's time for us to say, well, you know, I don't speak on their behalf. I'm not here to answer to their bad behavior. I'm out. No, I agree. And like you said, we're always thinking about um, his family, his paycheck, this. But then you have to also think about the women coming out with these accusations they're they're putting their professional lives in jeopardy they're putting their family their livelihoods their everything in jeopardy yep accusing said man women gain so little so little out of it coming forward exactly so it's like if a woman is coming forward you best listen to her yeah because she's not doing it for shits and giggles yeah and actually let me let me rephrase they often don't gain anything at all and lose yes, everything lose so much more out of it so it's just it's one of those things that when women are speaking and they're speaking on something or about a man or anything you best listen and take yeah. it seriously yeah you you take it seriously and you acknowledge the fact that we haven't learned anything since anita hill right mm-hmm. that 
will forever remain etched in my memory and I think in the collective memory. Clarence Thomas should have never been, ever, ever, ever been approved. No. And added to the court. How many years have we been living through that? Fucking fucker. You know I really hate someone when I call them a fucking fucker. Like I have nothing, like no other words can come out. It's just like that man just gives me the fucking irk. But it's 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 absolutely true. I mean, this this idea that women are somehow supposed to come forward and they're encouraged to come forward and then they're abused mm-hmm. by that same media that you're describing as biased and 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 not really able to tackle these issues the right way, we're kind of almost always set up to fail. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that Rebecca Traster really emphasizes that. In, in a really intelligent way. And at no point does she discourage the reader from remaining angry, yeah. from finding those within your orbit or outside of it who can create that support, who can listen to you, who can hopefully help you or support you in some way, right? So she encourages us to remain angry, but of course the entire book is kind of like this analysis of, of, of what that means. But there is this other moment in the book that I did kind of want to touch on. It says, for women, both poles are toxic. To be fearsome is to be vilified and unpalatable, unnatural and monstrous. To be adorable is to be unserious and incompetent. And that's the fine line that women constantly have to walk, Mm -hmm. right? You want to be taken seriously. You're a professional. You know what you're doing. You're qualified for your role. But you're also called cute. Yeah. (laughs) Or adorable. Or you're... You're interrupted on a regular basis or, you know, people will just rephrase your idea (laughs) in the same meeting. And you're like, I just fucking said that. And all you did was word vomit it in the same way. Like taking crazy pills. (laughs) Right. And that's exactly the thing is that we're told that we're taking crazy pills. We're told that we're taking crazy pills because of course they're not doing that. Of course they're not. They're so happy that you're there. They're so, so, so happy. You're at the table, so it's fine. Exactly. (laughs) If you're at the table, then you've made it, and that's fine, and everything is is fine now. You don't have to worry. (laughs) Now, I do want to talk about my girl, Ruth. Mm -hmm. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Of course, she's included in this. Of course, she's a badass. She's described, I think, in the most loving way in this book, but it says, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she was a threat. She's like a little doll of female anger who we can all cheer for, even as she's outvoted again and again and again. It's extremely difficult to imagine the same kind of tattoo-inspiring admiration for her angry opinions if those opinions were actually reshaping the law. So this is obviously talking about her dissent. Yeah. And I did want to talk about that because I think so often we take the L, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> we saw that yesterday when we were in Seneca Falls, right? It mm-hmm. took they, they 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 tried to pass the 19th Amendment and then it didn't actually pass until another what, 40 years. 40 years. 40 so years, yeah. Only one woman who only signed the Declaration of, of Sentiments. Was still alive. Was still, something like yes. that. We're going to fact check that. One woman was still alive when it finally passed. Yeah. But she was too old and ill to go vote. To even vote. To even vote. Everyone else had been long since dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I just wanted to to emphasize that point because... There is no winning without, unfortunately, constant losses first, right? And these women lost so often and were discouraged so often. And the list of men that joined them at the first Women's Rights Convention is such a short 
list. Yeah, right? it really is. Frederick Douglass was among them. Mm-hmm. Mad love for him. Yeah. But it's just fascinating to me that, you know, we're living in this moment, I think because things move so quickly in every other element of our lives, like the news cycle is so quick. Mm-hmm. We can get information so quickly. We're on Instagram, we're on Google and everything just moves fast. And we forget that that doesn't mean that progress does too. Yeah. And exactly. that progress is just this like really incremental thing. And that sometimes it's about actually taking three steps back and one step forward. And unfortunately, that kind of just is the way things go, especially within American politics. Mm -hmm. And now we're living in an extremely divisive time where Republicans and Democrats, and I'm not even just talking about people in government, but like just your neighbors, we can't see eye to eye. No. Because politics has become about human rights. It's become about values. Yeah. That's what it's become about. It's become about values. And so there's really no way of kind of tiptoeing around that. But Ruth was this icon of dissent. She was this icon of like, I'm going to stand up for this, even though I know I'm not going to win today. I know that this isn't going to pass. I know that I'm not reshaping the law right now, but I'm going to dissent extremely loudly. And I think that we all have to take that lesson and really use it. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. At least... Not for me, because she's my everything. She is the best. She's up there with Michelle Obama for me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. She's Queens. and she's she's one of the latest um, inductees, right, into yes. the National Women's Hall of Fame. We she saw is. that yesterday. We passed by there too, and saw all the inspiring women there, and all their names and all their accomplishments. That was incredible. It was so incredible. That really was incredible. But it's it's just so moving. But I. Let's see. I think it's important that we talk about white women as I had already kind of teased. (laughs) Um, Rebecca Traister makes it pretty clear that we do need to look back on the founding of this country, as we already know and we've tried to do on this podcast, as a lens through which we should investigate our current moment. And she says, white patriarchal minority rule was established by America's founders when they encoded slavery into our founding documents and built our electoral apparatus around its protection, it was strengthened when they granted white men the franchise and violently guarded that exclusivity for almost a century, ensuring that it was only they who created and enroll and controlled the courts, the businesses, the economic systems, who wrote the legislation and created the customs and set the norms on which the country was built. This is important for a few reasons. But what I want to talk about today is because of the proximity that white women have to that power. Yeah. That I think is extremely important. We've already talked about, you know, how, how, how the founding has obviously created horrible income inequalities and made life significantly more difficult in terms of progress for black people. But we haven't really had a chance to talk about the proximity that white women have to that power and why patriarchy is so defended by some women, which is something that's very puzzling to a lot of people, right? Yeah. I hear, like my mom will say this, she's like, I can't believe this woman voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, like how could a woman vote for him? And I'm like, well, you have to think about how, what proximity she has to that, to whatever privilege, right? Yeah, like what exactly. is it about her? What kind of power structure is in place that keeps her safe? Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's this great chapter in the book called What's the Matter with White Women, which I think is fantastic. And she says this this dynamic applies most specifically to white women who, as wives, daughters, mothers, sisters, neighbors, employees, colleagues and friends of white men, have been offered a kind of proximal power 
greater access via their relation to powerful white men, to wealth, jobs, educational opportunities, housing, and healthcare options. For white women, this dependency on white men incentivizes a dedication to and protection of white male power because these women's advantages are linked so closely to white men having the power to in turn dole it out to them. That to me is an extremely fascinating Mm -hmm. concept. And it shows how America has always been built on and continues to be built on these separations of race. Because ultimately, being white is going to grant you so much more privilege and opportunity than anything else. Absolutely. And so women will align themselves with it whenever possible. Yeah. No, and they think of, um, when we think of the 2016 election, women, how could she vote for that horrible man? He's a rapist. He's this. He says horrible things to people. But these white women are associating themselves or identifying themselves more so with whiteness before even being a woman Mm -hmm. because it does grant them that privilege that access there in society absolutely accounts for so much and then of course inevitably we have to talk about the power of black women within politics how often do you hear like oh my god thank god for black women they saved us again i have a kind of problem with that yeah because And Rebecca Traister puts, she puts it so perfectly in the book. She says, it's the fact that black women have been, have been offered neither patriarchal nor racial advantage in exchange for support that has enabled their steady and unremitting leadership of the resistance to white patriarchal power in America. So when we say stuff like these women saved us yet again, it's their vote that kept us from whatever this time yeah, you know thank I mean? god for stacy abrams exactly and every, like <laughs> it kind of emphasizes that they're actually not in the center of like they, they almost have this like periphery role and that's not accurate no. but it's it's portrayed that way and so that's why i think it's important to look at black women as the political future mm-hmm. and we're seeing a lot of that obviously having a black woman vp stacy abrams i yeah, mean i'm obsessed amazing. with her and i've been so amazing i cried when <laughs> when she lost the governor's race the fucking second time but whatever whatever but it's just i think it's really important for us to think about proximal power who has it and how we can then strengthen the influence and the power of those who don't have that initial proximal power and i think that investing in black women especially black women running for office There's proof that they can do well. The system is just not built or designed to support them because of all the things we've talked about. Media bias, Mm -hmm. proximal power, the angry black woman trope. Yes, that horrible trope they use on my queen, Michelle, constantly. Constantly when Barack was in office and running for office. And in a way, he almost had to do with that too, right? Like he could never look angry. He could never look you know, as though something was, was, was bothering him. And really anyway, he had to be this cool cucumber as did she, because that trope is, I think generally like a, like a racial trope. It's Super not, racial. it's not just for women, no, but obviously so more real. so them, but, mm-hmm. but that was really tough for me. But it, that actually is a really good segue to another thing I wanted to mention, which is that like so much of like what we're taught in terms of like living in this world as women is to keep the peace, right? Yes, to smile, yes. to giggle it off. Like, oh, that's fine when it doesn't feel fine. Like, how do you preserve your own job, your own, just your own life, your own standing without doing that? You 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 do it by being nice. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of want to talk about that on a kind of more personal level because I'm not really known for that. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's like one way to put it. I, I think it's really important for women to feel encouraged to not be that, to mm. not keep the peace, to not be nice. I have no problem whatsoever saying that made me uncomfortable. Yeah. Please don't speak to me that way ever again. Yeah. Or my favorite. What do you mean? What do you mean? You say some like racist, sexist shit. What do you mean? And then when they're forced to articulate another way, they're like, oh shit, that actually like, is pretty oh, bad. Damn, what shit? <laughs> and this goes this goes actually kind of way back to when we read Glennon's Untamed, mm -hmm. episode one, where she was talking about this like little girl on her daughter's soccer team. Oh, yes. And how she was like, I didn't really like her. And then I realized it's because she's like, loud and smart and bombastic but we're Confident, taught to yeah. hate other women who who are those things because we're taught that there are competition no, we're taught that we shouldn't be that way they're a threat and mm -hmm. they're a threat to everything not just me and i was thinking about that while i was reading this book that there is so much power in the policing that women do towards other women yeah yeah amongst each other it's like the men are already policing us exactly. why are we doing it to ourselves but that's the best tactic when yeah. you police your own group the other group doesn't have to do it for you and i just thought that was really really fascinating because i would like to think of myself as someone that when i'm working if i if i have interns or or younger women working with me or asking me questions i always tell them to use their voice i always tell them to not be uncomfortable raising their hand to say what they need to say and to call people the fuck out. Yes. Because in favorite. order to build a better and easier world for women, I want every woman that comes after me to have it easier than I did. Absolutely. That's what, that's what progressivism is. Mm -hmm. It's not, Oh, well, I had it hard. So you have to have it hard too. That's how you learn. No, it's not. You have to earn your place. No, no, it's no. bullshit. I have power. So I'm going to use it to make it easier for her. Absolutely. That's how it should be fucking used. And I, it really pisses me off when I hear people like, oh, actually, I had to work really hard and I had to deal with men being mean to me too. Well, you know what? Maybe you should have fucking said something then. Absolutely. Because then it wouldn't have happened to me. Mm -hmm. and, it, it, and it's breaking the cycle. It's making it easier right. for, for the group of us as women as a whole to move forward in this world. It's what is it um all for one and one for all or whatever. Yeah. it's like <laughs> are we quoting the three musketeers right now yeah <laughs> for women <laughs> for women let's go oh my god i love that you made such a ridiculously nerdy such like, a that weird is so random <laughs> that is so fucking nerdy true. if we're all in this together then who's gonna stop us right exactly and you know what uh, now i'm thinking of high school musical oh we're my god all in this together, together. <laughs> Oh my God. I hope no one ever has to hear that again from us. <laughs> it's also like, how do you get compensated after you've been treated poorly? Yeah. I thought that was really fascinating when like one of the women that Rebecca Traster interviews for the book, she's like, I've lost time. Like this has affected my work. It's affected, you know, time with my family. It's affected everything. She's like, what we need to do is get fucking compensated. Yes. Which I was like, damn. And Put more women in power. And I think that that's something that the Me Too movement really emphasized. The replacement of men by women in positions of power. The Harvey Weinsteins, the Ugh. CEOs, the directors, the, the men who the were- The Lowers. Oh, oh my God, he Ugh. is so Ugh. fucking disgusting. No, all these men in power, if, if women were in power instead, it wouldn't be a, a predatory landscape. We right. wouldn't feel- scared or worried or shut out right 
Exactly. And people, people like to think that that's a lie. Yeah. I had, I had a friend once, tell, a, a guy friend tell me like, oh, but like when we've gone out, like I've never seen guys be gross. And I'm like, yeah, cause I'm standing next to a man. Yeah. Like, are you an idiot? <laughs> like use your critical thinking skills that clearly you weren't taught in school. <laughs> and think about that for a second. It's, it's unsafe for women. It's unsafe for women, period. And we're constantly gaslit into being told that none of that is true. Yeah. But actually, it's totally fine. Because, like, look, like, a woman ran for president, so you're safe when you walk home at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, um, (laughs) actually, (laughs) actually, I'm still fucking terrified. You know, it's just, it's, it's extremely, it's extremely difficult, I think, to even have those conversations. I've decided, and I don't know how correct this is, but I've decided that I don't want to dignify those comments with a response Mm -hmm. because if I respond, then it means it's worthy of argument. And I just don't believe that it is. Yeah. No, I feel you there. I don't know how right that is. It's also like, yeah, no, no, I totally get you. And then at the same time, at the same time, you want to both educate the person. Right. But then at the, but then you're like, but why do I have to educate you? Right. Like, right. You should know better by now, or you should have a woman in your life that, Everyone has a woman in their life. So you should have a woman in your life that has taught you about this, who has molded you, right. who has, has built who you. Who has told you what's happened to yes. her. Yes. Like, I just don't. Every woman, whether big or small, has one of these instances, a Me right. Too instance in their life. Every single one. Every single one. There's not one woman out yeah. there that hasn't. Yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's again, like how is it that something that is so true within our community that we know to be true because we've all experienced it? How is it that men try to convince us that it isn't real? Yeah. That's, I think what makes me so furious. It's maddening. It is maddening. It's, it's really maddening. And I, and I appreciate that Rebecca Traster, you know, in the book, she tells, she tells you, she's like, don't ever let anyone talk you out of being angry, you know, but also at the same time. And I think that this is something else. Like I would kind of maybe like to conclude with this, which is, She says, I can't tell women to express their anger as I have and not acknowledge that in the real world, this rage might get them fired, denied raises and promotions, incur punishments and violence. Um, We live in a world in which a black woman angry at being pulled over for no reason risks arrest and a woman angry at being unjustly arrested risks death in which young women are shot or run down by cars because they or because another woman have rejected the advances of a man. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very good place to end. We do have to show compassion for women who can't speak up and ask ourselves, is is there a way for us to do it for them? Is there a way for us to help build a better world for them? Because I've fortunately never been in a position where if I come forward, like I could be fired or that's never happened to me. My experiences have always been just a lot more about like blatant disrespect, speaking down to me, mansplaining, being followed at night, being touched. The, the kind of more typical yeah. stuff like that we all like experience day to day on the like street, yeah like day to day stuff <laughs> which is sad that we're talking about it so casually but yeah like really day to day stuff and i and i think it's important to remember that not everyone also has it in them to come forward in that way that it's like it's a skill that can be acquired and i i just want to emphasize that women should be supported whether or not they come forward or not we can't shame women who don't come forward no as hard as that Maybe like sometimes we just want to shake someone and be like, "Well, just say something." Yeah, go to HR. Go do this. But we know, we know that these things are extremely complicated. They're a natural gray area, and I just want, I just want people to remember that there are different ways to seek that help, 
And there are different ways to kind of have that conversation, but it just, it, ne- it needs to be, it needs to be emphasized. I agree. And, and it, and it pisses me off. It makes me angry. It's just, you know, you wish we lived in a society where women could feel comfortable yeah. and confident coming forward at any given time. And, and it makes me mad. And I think uh, one of my favorite lines in the book, which I think is sums it up perfectly about our anger and, and channeling that anger into progress and, and to better is being mad is correct. Being mad is American. Being mad can be joyful and productive and connective. Don't ever let them talk you out of being mad again. Yes. Yes. For Rebecca the, Tracer is such a bad bitch. She really is. For the people in the back. Yeah. Stay mad. Stay mad. Please read this book. We, we're we not doing it justice today because it's so meaty. You know, we just wanted so to meaty. touch on a few topics that we particularly find interesting. Things that we actually talk about all the time. Yeah. Like we don't need a mic to be talking about these issues. We talk about this all the time. So we just wanted to touch on those and, you know, the Hillary thing. And we didn't even really get into Harvey Weinstein. I think I'd get too mad about that if yeah. I did. Yeah, yeah, we skipped over that we big chunk. We skipped over that big chunk. But I just, I cannot recommend this book enough. And the audiobook, I heard like a little snippet of it and it's her reading it. And yeah. I think it's just so good. So you can almost think of it as a podcast because it, it really is, is. Yeah, it's an, it's nonfiction. It's stuff that you would recognize. It's, it's current history that you either lived through or like Anita Hill stuff that like I was too young to remember. Yeah. yeah, Learned about later. You know, (laughs) it's just stuff that is really going to resonate with you. So I cannot possibly recommend this book enough. And it was the perfect, I think, addition to this trip where we had a chance to really reflect on the women's rights movement here in the U.S. and what the setbacks have been and how we can move forward. And we were talking about this at dinner last night. Like what would Susan B. Anthony say about the fact that we now have women who run for office, women in office. We have a woman VP. What would they have to say? I think they would acknowledge that we have a lot further to go, but it would be an extremely proud moment. And I think we should be really proud of how far we've come. I agree. And I'm excited for the future and and ready for for what's to come and yeah i can't wait to be president i know i can't wait to see you there i'll be a good uh, press secretary oh my god i would be so good at that job i would would put people in their fucking place it'd be an all-woman cabinet (laughs) let's keep dreaming guys keep dreaming oh and now i'm so excited to get into the wine So I'm super excited for this wine tasting because as you guys all know, we are in the Finger Lakes. We're staying at Glen Hollow and having a fantastic week. And this is a major first. We have never done a tasting with the actual winemaker. It's always been just like me and you hanging out, sipping on stuff, me guiding us. Moving on up. Moving on up. (laughs) So yeah, check us out here. And Um, Since we're in the Finger Lakes, I wanted to focus on a local winery, especially a local winery with badass women associated with it. Hosmer was established in 1985 by husband and wife duo, um, Cameron and Marin Hosmer, and they're one of the pioneers in the Finger Lakes, and they're dedicated to sustainable farming and forward thinking, which 
totally aligns with us and our brand. They have a crew of badass women. We have Julia Hoyle, the winemaker, Brooke Morsh, the general manager, tasting room manager, Genevieve Chase, and assistant winemaker, Emily Grazer. And today we have the pleasure of mixing up our format to taste wine with Julia. Let's give Julia a warm welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Julia. We so, so appreciate you coming, well, us coming to you and you dealing with us here <laughs> to sip on some great wines and, and just talk to us and chat with us and be part of the conversation. Yep, my pleasure. Great. Can you give us, um, I mean, we know who you are. We've, we've actually been walking the facilities with her. Been yeah, walking petting. the property, which is yeah. so beautiful. So gorgeous. Petting cute winery dogs. Which Wyatt. Shout Wyatt. out to Wyatt. <laughs> Shout out to Wyatt, our supervisor here at yep. the podcast. Everyone's supervisor. Um, but can you give us a little background on you, your wine journey, how it began, and kind of how you ended up here? Yeah. So I am not from the Finger Lakes. I grew up about 10 minutes north of Philadelphia. And when I was looking for places to study undergrad, William Smith College was on my radar. Hobart and William Smith Colleges, it's a coordinate system. So William Smith historically was the women's college. Hobart historically was the men's college. Mm -hmm. um, I knew I wanted to study French and Francophone studies, and they had a really great study abroad program in Senegal. And most places just had France. So I was like, that's where I want to go. I got in. Um, I had an uncle up here. So it just kind of made sense. I had some family in the area and I entered, studied French, but then also got into studying women's studies. So I was a double major in French and Francophone studies and women's studies. Nothing to do with wine. No. As you're probably already picking up. <laughs> yeah. My minors were Islamic studies and art history. So still okay. oh my God. Okay. nothing to do with wine. Um, and then my junior year of college, I bought my eldest brother's Volvo, this 1995 Volvo that would make it down the road, but yes. needed some encouraging. <laughs> some love. Yep. And I thought, oh, sweet. I can actually drive places now. So I applied to a few different wineries just to work in their tasting room. This is 2009. And Fox Run hired me on Seneca Lake. Oh, cool. I've been there. Yep. Nice place. Yeah. Yep. Um, great family to work for. So I started there and over time just became really interested in what wine was. Mm -hmm. um, there's no reason I should have fallen in love with it, but people would ask me questions in the tasting room and I'd actually want to know the answer. I didn't want to bullshit them. I'd be yeah, like, yeah. let me figure that out. I yeah. know there's an One answer second. somewhere. <laughs> um, and then I started to overlap with the winemaker at the time, Peter Bell, who recently retired. Yeah, um, when he would have guests visit, particularly if he had French guests visit, because mm -hmm. I would help him translate some. And his French was workable. He grew up in Canada. Like, oh, so he yeah. did grow up in a bilingual setting, but English was his primary language for sure. So then we got to know each other and then it got turned into, oh, do you want to help on the bottling line? Oh, do you want to help in the cellar? And the more I did, the more I fell in love with it. Um, and then sort of through that journey, I also met my spouse, who's also a winemaker. Yeah, um, because we both worked at Fox Run. Um, I have now been at Hosmer Winery since late 2016. Oh, um, Previously, I was down the road at Sheldrake Point, and I also took a sabbatical to be the night shift white winemaker for Yolumba Winery in South Australia. Oh, so fun. I got to oversee a crew of oh 30 sort of middle-aged men, but they all loved me <laughs> by the end, and I was Good. 25. So. Yeah. 
yes. That's always challenging, you know, yeah, overcoming very. that. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more, like speaking of that and, and yeah. managing middle-aged men as a young woman <laughs> in, a, in a patriarchal society, yeah. um, how was that experience and just your experience as a woman line maker and, and going through the world in that way in the industry? Yeah. I mean, the hardest thing for me is that I like to always give people the benefit of the doubt. I like to give them a, a lot of leeway, but I've, there are times, and I, I don't feel this way at a company like Hosmer, but going somewhere totally new, yeah. no one knows you. Um, I just had to say, I need this done. And if it got questioned, I just had to be like, no, it's not a discussion. I've told you what I need done. Um, but I'm not I don't like I to know, be that way. Very, I don't yeah. like to be that way. From but the time I, we've met, you're like, I can be that way, though, if I need yeah. to be. Well, that's important. I mean, I think that women in general are, are, are sort of taught that when you're like that, you're unlikable, you're aggressive, mm -hmm. that it's unnecessary. Whereas if men act this way, it's admirable, it's strong, it's, it's getting the job done. It's getting the job done, right? So it's important, I think, for us, especially women, you know, like yourself in, in industries where women are not the majority to actually mm -hmm. act in that way and yeah. to help kind of pave the way for other women to feel that kind of confidence because unfortunately it's just it's just not the majority and it's so so yep. so difficult my favorite thing to do and i've gotten better at doing it as i've gotten older is when um it's almost always men that are older than me when they say something that is inappropriate I ask them to repeat themselves. Yes. That's my favorite tactic. Because then all of a sudden they're thinking about what just came out of their mouth and you can, they I'm, like. I've been, okay. So I'm, <laughs> I'm obsessed with the fact that you said that because I tell Lexi all the time, I'm like, whenever someone says something to me, inappropriate, disrespectful, or they're trying, they're trying to be funny. I'm like, what do you mean? Yes. And then they have to articulate it in another way. And I'm and like, oh, you don't like, like it asshole. that way. Huh? <laughs> it doesn't sound that good when you repeat it that other way, huh? Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, I didn't mean it. Shh. Yeah. Enough. Yeah. Don't do it again. Yeah. And then they're scared. And that's exactly where I like yeah. it. Yeah. So yeah. Same here. I totally get it. That's so my tactic. Yeah. Oh my God. I love it. And it works that. great. We need to share this tactic with every woman because yes. I think it can do. save the world. Yes. <laughs> One change at a time. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So I can only imagine it. It, it can be it can be challenging to be, you know, a woman in, in the wine industry having this position, you know, mm -hmm. of of tremendous privilege, right, and, and mm -hmm. power. And, and so it's really inspiring to hear you talk about that because I think it helps other women hear that kind of story as well and tap into their own, you know, leadership skills that maybe they don't feel comfortable tapping into. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really great just to share, you know, to share your yep. story. Definitely. And at Hosmer, you know, you have a big female team mm -hmm. of, of women. Um, Emily is a winemaker yeah. and, and all this. Um, was that an intentional thought of hiring or it just so happened because you guys are so like it's embedded in your dna almost to be more inclusive or so it was kind of a it just so happened that way because i find that when i put out ads for hiring i don't get very many men that apply hmm. interesting yes. for those particular for the ads that i put out yeah when i've had to look for an assistant winemaker huh. and they have to email Julia, Julia. Oh, her, okay. The hiring manager <laughs> who will be the manager. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I get very, very few men that apply. Hmm, of course. better off. Anyway. Yeah, but which I find as a fascinating. So it's, that is. People are like, oh, is it intentional? I go, well, not, not really. But then I also find myself in, I would say, a very good position that people are applying to the job that may well be getting overlooked by other employers because, oh, they don't look physically fit for the position. 
Right. Well, guess what? We have forklifts. We have tools. Yes. We have a team of people that can jump in and help each other. I, you don't need to bench press 300 pounds to be a good employee in a winery. Right. <laughs> you just don't need to do that. Um, right. But I, I found that very few men apply. That is fascinating. Which is a me thing, having spoken to other um, winemakers in the industry. And, and since you started um, in the region, have you noticed a shift in the staffing amongst different wineries? Like maybe skewing a bit more female, women of color, kind mm -hmm. of coming, you know, coming more into the industry. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just curious about that up here. Yeah. So for sure, in the Finger Lakes, the industry is still quite white. Yeah. And that like just got I mean, demographically. Yeah, demographically. Yeah, that is what it is. Um, yeah. There is a shift that is happening little by little, which I think is fantastic and necessary and needed. As far as sort of gender dynamics, there are a lot more women working in production, but the number of women that are head winemakers has not grown all too much. There are a lot of assistants or lower mm -hmm. level positions. Um, and something I just muse about is I've seen a number of friends really have their careers pivot or completely shift as they have children, yeah. um, which, you know what, that's also like, if you want to have a career shift because you're building a family, it's a legitimate choice. Yeah, of course. But it makes me wonder what is the industry not doing well or correctly to support them in both being a head winemaker, perhaps, yeah. and growing a family. Exactly. Yeah. But it shouldn't be a, a one or the other. You would hope that right. it's, I could have all of the things I want in my life. Right. Yeah. Well, but, it sounds similar also to, to our industry that there are a lot of, you know, the young women that are around are the assistants or maybe the associates and managers, but you don't really see all that many, you know, chief curators or directors. So it's the same, same shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the same shit. Different, different look. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, wine is at its root, it, both positive, but also at times negative. It is a very traditional culture. Yeah. So there are some really deeply embedded things, both in wine and farming, that don't shift overnight. Yeah. But if you don't talk about it, you can't change it. Right. So. Since you've been working here for a while and you've got it into your own style, what, what would you say your winemaking style is? That's a good question. I am not one to get super excited about natural wine, so don't. It's fine. Don't. It's okay. Don't do that. Because no. um, I think that both at Hosmer but regionally we can grow beautiful fruit and I view my role as the one that brings that beautiful fruit into a beautiful wine. Um, so, like, we do some funkier stuff around the cellar. I blend it away. I just like to tinker. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, once in a while, we might bottle something that's a little quirky. But I just like to have really beautiful, fruit-driven, express-the-vineyard wines because, you know, I'm not going to say, oh, I don't do anything in the winery. Emily and I do a lot in the yeah, winery. Yeah, yeah. You work yeah. hard there. And yeah. you'll hear people say, oh, I don't have to do anything. The vineyard makes my life so I easy. I said it and forget it. No. Yeah. And they, they do make my life very easy because the fruit's beautiful. Yeah. Um, but there is still a lot of minute decisions constantly having not just, you know, three alternative options when things go awry, but say 25 mm -hmm. and each one of those threads takes you in a different direction so oh my gosh and what are we tasting today what did you pull for us yeah so i grabbed our 2022 dry riesling our 2021 chardonnay which is about 95 percent stainless steel right um and then our 2020 limited release cabernet franc um, i chose these three from our portfolio because we have the most acreage of these three varietals in the vineyard 
Perfect. Yeah. Thanks. Let's pour the first yeah, one. Yeah. Let's let's get perfect. It started. I'll start with our dry Riesling. Perfect. Perfect. And this actually is another one that's about 95% stainless steel and it has a small oak component. Um, a big reason for that, just we like to tinker, but also 2022 is a very light harvest. So then you're thinking, where can I successfully ferment this excess, you know, 55 gallons? Yeah. A barrel. So, <laughs> so you're like, dig through and you're like, all right, where are my neutral white barrels? Do I have a good one that might match up with Riesling? Perfect. Yeah. yeah like, nice. Yeah. All right. All right. And I am very fond of Riesling after going to Riesling camp. Awesome. So <laughs> I'm very keen on Yeah. I'm obviously a Riesling lover. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be in the Finger Lakes if I wasn't. No, yeah. <laughs> you kind of have to be. It's a prerequisite. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Riesling is definitely one of my favorites. So coming up here, I was like, oh, this will be a treat. Yeah. Nice. I love, like, the citrus. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this is a blend of multiple ferments, multiple blocks on the farm. We walked by the oldest block on our earlier tour of the facility. So I said that was in 1980. Some of our younger plantings are now they're a little over 15 years um, and we're going to be planting a couple more acres next spring. Nice. So that ground is prepped. Um, ready to go. Yeah, ready to go. <laughs> so our dry Riesling style, I also stop ferments and then kind of blend my different ferments. So I get a residual sugar of three to five grams. Probably. Because you can go, obviously, completely bone dry. Mm -hmm. But there's some really beautiful fruit aromatics that you just lose when ferments go completely dry. Some estuary aromas. Um, and for some wine styles, you kind of want them to go away. Yeah. yeah. Um, but for dry Riesling, I just think they're super attractive. Yeah, um, for sure. And the fruit shines here. It's yeah. really like well balanced. Yes, definitely. Oh, yeah. Typical year, we have anywhere between 10 and 15 Riesling ferments, which I have other friends that are winemakers that are like, ha, I have 50 in my cellar. Oh, well, whatever. Get out of here. <laughs> like, that's fine for you. Yeah. This is what we're doing. 15 yeah. feels like a lot for me. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, just tinkering, we usually do a skin ferment that we blend away to stuff. Um, once in a while, it does get isolated out and bottled separate because um, it is fun to tinker with sort of yeah. orange wine styles. But again, I don't typically bottle them because I don't find them to be the best expression of something that I could make. Yeah. And that's just a personal decision. No, definitely. Totally respect that. Yeah. I'm sure it's fun just messing around. And oh, it is. Like, yeah. What is this going to turn out like? I never, um, yeah. Sebastian, the other day from Living Roots Winery, we had the the Rizza Riesling. It was oh, like yeah. 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 I'm like, what? Like, how did you even come up yeah. with doing that? It's like a mad yeah. scientist shit. It's a little yeah. mad scientist. So the first person I know that was doing that was actually not even a winery around here. It's the Finger Lake Cider House. Okay. So we work closely with them, and for about five years, Garrett's been collecting, really since I've been here, maybe six years now, uh, he will collect our Cab Franc or Lemberger skins after I've cold soaked for mm -hmm. rosé. And so the skins are super fresh, they haven't been fermented on, and they'll show up and then they'll steep some fresh cider and start fermenting wow. on it. Oh. So the cider house might the first they might. one they might have pioneered yeah okay <laughs> you know i respect imitation it. is the most sincerest form of flattery it yeah is. you know imitating the cider and exactly. they were trying to come up with a rosé product with yeah. cider 
you don't have red fruit to play with. Yeah, right. That's true. And that's fun mm-hmm. color. Yep. Oh, and the Cab Franc retains the color. So it's this really like poppy, sort of pinkish red. It's nice. fun stuff. That's so interesting. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, this is absolutely delicious. Mm-hmm. I love this. <laughs> mm-hmm. So tasty and fresh and perfect for where we are from. Yeah. <laughs> it's like perfect hot yeah. weather wine. Yes. <laughs> totally hot weather. Yeah. I'm picturing us drinking this like on your deck. Yeah. In the sun. Oh, that's exactly yeah, what we need. Just enjoying the great outdoors, the 112 degree weather in Miami. Yeah. Yeah. Hard to enjoy, but maybe with this, yeah, with this more, so, more so. Much easier <laughs> to endure. <laughs> oh my god. Well, that's actually something that um, that we also wanted to talk to you about is just the area that we're in. I mean, mm-hmm. earlier before we started recording, you were talking to us about the history of the area a little bit. How does that inspire you and 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 make you kind of think about your role within this winery in this region? So that is. A layered question for me right now. Yep. Um, so we are in a region that has massive freshwater sources right in our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. They're all over the place, yeah. right? Finger Lakes. Yeah. And we also have the Great Lakes right behind those. So these are really precious resources that we have to take care of. Historically, that did not always happen, right? Yeah, like yeah. you hear about stories of rivers and lakes that could catch fire yeah. because of, you know, industrial buildup. Yeah. Um. So historically, the Finger Lakes were a very popular sort of summer area for people coming from the coast. And this is, again, pre any real concept of modern medicine. Yeah, yeah, 1850 yeah. doesn't sound, it wasn't that long ago, but yeah, we didn't know how to modern. do basic things like a doctor wouldn't wash his hands between surgeries or childbirth yeah. procedures. Right. That was not known right. as a way to spread disease. Yeah, this so, is like when they would send you to a seaside town. Correct. To make oh, you yes. feel better, yeah, you know, exactly. Correct. Like you seem like you need some sun and a breeze, and you're like, what? And people would come up here for sure. <laughs> yeah, sulfur springs, antibiotics. Yeah. yeah, there you go. It's the same thing. It's a seaside <laughs> town. Come up for a sulfur spring. Go to Clifton Springs or Bath, New York. Came up earlier. Yeah. Come up to these areas and be cured of your illness. Right, yeah. right. Um, but then, of course, people did that, and 30 years later, started to contaminate the waterways up here because. Of course. Humans. Yeah. Um, of course. Yep. <laughs> we do yep. that. Say no yeah. more. <laughs> so I would say um, all of us at Hosmer, but just like regionally when you're in farming, um, you're very aware of what you put in the vineyard, in the soil, runoff. Where's that going to go to? How do we protect these resources right. that we are lucky to have? Yeah. Um, so... I don't know if that was a good answer. No, that no, was it's a great answer. answer. I mean, it's just it's just obviously so embedded into the culture, you know, and and mm-hmm. and it's something that you know you keep in mind, which I think is interesting of the region, right? Like every different place, every different wine country is going to have that kind of historical element embedded into the practice. Mm-hmm. So I'm always curious to hear about that. Yep. No, most definitely. And then when it comes, we talked about a little bit of contaminating lakes and all that. And it also leads me to think about the season you had, that it's kind of erratic with some, luckily you guys didn't get the frost, but you know, some, lots of rain, some frost. What, um, what kind of things are you doing, you know, in the wake of climate change? Mm -hmm. What are some of the sustainable practices you guys have over here? Yep. So sort of number one is, considering your spray applications because this is a region that historically was growing and was kind of spraying yeah right, and right. roundup and this is what you do and that's how you grow just kind of goes and at some it. point after a couple decades you're like, what is this really what we have to do yeah right you know is is that really the best process um so reevaluating that thinking about different organic material that you can put in the vineyard we are not an organic winery 
Um, very few are in this region. It's tough. It's a, it's a very yeah. difficult. And my spouse and I will talk about at home, given that we're both winemakers and we now own a vineyard, is who wrote the rules on being organic? Yeah. Not the East Coast. Right. <laughs> who has all the water? The yeah. East Coast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you right. know, you have to think about, like, who's writing the rule book? And I'm really happy that New York has just finally put together the sustainability workbook, which the Hosmer, both Tim and his father, Cameron, were very involved in. Um, because you have to keep in mind that we might have a season that it rains every other day. Are you not going to spray anything but sulfur in the vineyard? Yeah. No, it's, it's challenging. And it's very region specific. <laughs> it yeah. can't just be like, yeah, what works in Germany or in California or yeah. France works here. Correct. Well, it's just, it's so much problem solving. You have to, you yeah. have to be so like readily available to think on your feet. Oh, ready to pivot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah Constantly. Yeah. And then, you know, certainly another thing that was really a heart of the workbook that's come out, but also for everyone here is labor and employees and making sure people are making livable wages. Yeah. You know, we have some seasonal labor and those guys are awesome. They've been working at our farm for a few years. Um, some sort of wrapped up and went back to Mexico at the end of July. Some will be here till about Thanksgiving and then head back, maybe back next year. Mm -hmm. um, but also like going through that program, making sure again, livable wages, mm -hmm. like housing is housing safe, right. you know, clean what it needs to be. Um, and then also then for year round employees, so yeah. A little thing, but like I have dental insurance. No. Very few winemakers have dental insurance. It's important. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and no, I'm like, I think recently I need dental insurance. Exactly. <laughs> You're important now. All that enamel is <laughs> gone, girl. <laughs> yeah. So no. little things like that. that no, and it adds up. It's, it's just interesting that, that you're mentioning this because we, we always make the point that everything to a certain extent is political, right? Oh, yeah. So you're thinking about just your, your everyday you know, your job, you know, those who work with you here and how mm -hmm. policies and legislation affect those who work here and they affect mm -hmm. you and what kind of access you have. And it brings us back to the point you were making about women who leave this industry because they choose to have a family. So what more mm -hmm. can we do? So everything always does. And we try and prove this point all the time. People are going to be like, we're going to stop listening to this podcast because we get it. <laughs> I get it, Maritza. Everything's political, but it's just so true. And you see yep. different examples of it really everywhere you go. So I, I think it's really interesting that, that, you know, that yeah. you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah. So are we ready for I round think so. two? The Chardonnay. Chardonnay. Yeah. Amazing. So this is the 2021 Chardonnay. So sort of in the vein of having to pivot all the time, 2021 and 2022 as vintages could not have been more different. So 2021 was a very wet vintage. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of fruit. Mm -hmm. um, 2022 was an incredibly light crop vintage, a lot of acreage in the Finger Lakes only cropped at half a ton to a ton and a half per acre, where in 2021, most things cropped at five tons or more. Oh, wow. um, yeah. So I had to order in December last minute, I had to order an additional 30 barrels because we had all this Cab Franc. Yeah, you're like, like, I gotta yeah. do something with this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. So again, this is mostly stainless steel, a small barrel component. And this is primarily from the block of Chardonnay that was planted in 1978. Oh, okay. So the older vines. Mm -hmm. Nice. What percentage was the oak? There was a little bit of oak. Or no, it's just stainless steel. For the Chard? Yeah, the Chard. About 5%. Oh, 5%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So tiny Super amount. Tiny. Yeah, tiny, yeah. Tiny. And nothing really fully completes ML for our Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. I joke. I inoculate barrels. 
They never finish. And I don't I don't lose sleep over that. I filter our wines, so I know yeah. nothing totally weird is going to happen in bottle. If I didn't, well, yeah, then I might exactly. have a spontaneous ML, and no one needs to get into those. No, right. Right. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is the kind of Chardonnay that people who say they don't like Chardonnay would like, you yeah. know, like. That they should try. You should try yeah. and explore and experiment yeah. because it's not, I think a lot of people that aren't very knowledgeable in the wine world, they think of like that California butter bomb, yeah. oaky. Yeah. And I'm like, no, this is more European, you know, French and style and just like nice and lean and clean. You really taste mm-hmm. the fruit and this is the type that you totally should serve them. Yeah, this is, this is yeah. fantastic. I was one of those people. I was one of those people who just, I avoided... Chardonnay. Chardonnay on a wine menu because I was like, well, I've had I've had one and I didn't like it. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, that, <laughs> and that stereotype so is just there. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, around here a lot of Chardonnay. Most portfolios will lean, stainless steel heavy. So I make about ten times as much of this style. We have a small oak version because mm-hmm. we have some clients that do really like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is definitely what the market loves, what our taste room, people that come into our taste room love. Um, and I really like working on it. So. Yeah. Okay. No, that works out well. Yeah. It's so exactly. fresh. <laughs> like, this I love is the it. one I like. Yeah. So I'm glad I make this more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how those two things seem to align often. But yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's like where like, you know, personal preference and your own passion is, is quite literally like filtered into, mm-hmm. you know, the final product. And that's why it's so interesting to talk to the winemaker because it is a labor of love. Ultimately, it's something oh, yeah. that you love and then the rest of us get to enjoy it for yeah. exactly that yeah. reason. And we feel the love. And we oh, feel good. the love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, when you're, because I'm not from the Hosmer family, it's also an interesting role to be hired as the winemaker for a family that's so actively involved in the vineyard side of things primarily. Yeah. Because you have to really digest and understand the portfolio that you're taking on. And what's important to the Hosmer family, you know, which wines are really core wines for them, which wines, and I can, I can tinker with pretty much everything. They trust me to like, to make sound decisions on wines and not do anything that's going to really throw off the portfolio. But you have to understand that. So my first year was a lot of, yeah, just trying to get my feet under me. There are a couple of wines that I wish I didn't have to make, but I also understand that there's this person that drives from Binghamton every month and buys two cases of it, uh, right? And so you're like, okay, okay, I understand. And yeah, those people helped us get through COVID. We would have I people have. that would drive down the hill and buy a case of wine once a week and they'd give some away to their friends and they'd keep some for themselves, but they were the ones who'd call and say, put it out front, here's my credit card number. Yeah. yeah. And you have to make sure that you have, A, wines that they can afford because yeah. we are in Western upstate New York. This is not downstate. No, know? no. Um, very different. Very different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so our portfolio also tries to have something for everyone um, so they can walk in the door and no one feels like they're so priced out. Yeah. They can't. No, yeah. and that's really important to democratize the wine yeah. experience mm-hmm. so that everyone yeah. feels like they could partake and yeah. participate in it. Yeah. Um, you mentioned COVID. How was that up here dealing with <laughs> the it was- shit show that was... It was, um, I'm going to say interesting. So my... What a great euphemism. (laughs) My spouse was in London and March 13th flew home. He got COVID, brought it home. We're both winemakers, lost our sense of taste and smell. Oh, that too. (laughs) Yeah, that too. I'm like economically (laughs) working in the... And I'm like, shit, you can't taste or smell your product. It was, for me, it only lasted for a couple of weeks. And this was before they knew it was a symptom. 
Because so right, you were just like, what is happening to me? Yeah, I just was like, are these crazy allergies? <laughs> is this a reaction because of stress, right? Because everyone's Anything, so stressed yeah. out. Because your body does weird things and you're stressed. Of course. Oh, that's um, and so eventually crazy. it came back and okay, fine. Um, and then by really early May, we had so many people from New York, Philadelphia, yeah. Boston just coming up here to get yeah. out of the city because mm-hmm. they'd just been stuck in their apartment. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like the 400 square foot apartment. Yes. <laughs> Even my brother, so my nephew was, what, two years old then? They came up from South Philly and Theo was just so excited, my nephew, to run around in the grass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, right? it's the parks were closed. Yeah, you couldn't go to the park. Go anywhere. It's directly across from his house. You couldn't go to the park. Ugh. Yeah. Um, so they all came up. A lot of tourism that, in a quirky way, really seemed to help put us on the map as a region. Nice. And we are already on the map. But when you have an influx of thousands of people coming to your region, spending a week or two, having a great time, going home, telling people about it, then you get a whole nother wave of people. That's yeah. awesome. Running a winery by myself was very difficult because it was just me at that time. Oh, my shit. previous seller assistant had a baby February 2020. And before. before COVID, I'd already been like, hey, you know, take your time. I'm leaving this open for you to come back if you want to come back to work. But then COVID hit. And that just changed everything for her. And she's like, I'm not. Yeah. I have a yeah. newborn. Got to focus on that. I, oh. I'm not coming home with COVID. There's a world pandemic. I, I'm not feeling this. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, you're also in a position where you're like, oh, man. Like, I don't really know, A, if I want to work with someone. Is this really the time to hire someone? Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's just so challenging. So running a winery solely by myself. I jogged around a lot when I'd have to switch tanks or. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, kudos to you. Yeah. <laughs> you made it through. For making yeah. it through. And thank you for holding down the fort. Yeah. I mean, it, it means, I'm sure, so much to the family and to everyone here, yeah. but that sounds intense. Yeah. It was intense. Yeah. We always <laughs> like finding the silver linings of COVID to justify the fact that for at least a couple of years, the world was fucked. Yeah. yeah. And like, yeah. we were just so 100%. anxious and depressed constantly. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. awful. We didn't, we didn't see each other for like, what, like eight weeks or something at one point. And then like, we saw each other and we both just started sobbing. Yeah. 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 So her brother um, needed a kidney and she was his kidney donor oh and they gosh. had just, um, was it then? No, it was before. No, we were going to do it. They were going to do it. Yeah. And then we had to postpone it because then the transplant center was focused, focusing just on emergency patients. Yeah. So we were like, oh, fuck. So then we waited and waited and then we did it December of 2021, which was actually still still kind of tough. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. like she couldn't come visit me. In the yeah, hospital you had to be anything, alone. So I was yeah. alone, and also I had to be yeah. very mindful. Like if I'm visiting her, I need to make sure that I didn't see people right. that are loose and loose and out there. And like, yeah, just, yeah. I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna go take a COVID test, and then I'll get the result, and then I'll go. See, I won't see one, and then I'll go see you because I, like yeah. her brother was in dire yeah. need of a kidney, and I yeah. wasn't. Yeah, no, and then post transplant's actually a lot worse because then you're taking immunosuppressants. Right. So it was like he couldn't actually leave the house for three months. Because that's a natural part of the process, but COVID was outside. Yeah. Right. So oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. careful about that. <laughs> so more. everything was just so, you know, we, so we were dealing with a lot, but it's just interesting to hear everyone's stories about that time because everyone handled it in their, in their own way, but we were all like scarred and fucked oh, from it. Yeah. You know, like yeah, there's yeah, just yeah. no other way around it. Yeah, like my I'll, sister-in-law's a nurse and oh, she got oh. called up to be like one of the night shift supervisors in the Yale health network. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I was supposed to visit her. For my birthday, March 14th, 
Kelby flew home last minute because borders are closing on the 13th. And I was like, ah, Nicole, I think I need to cancel my trip to Connecticut. Yeah. She goes, you know, yeah, work's like, I think work's about to get really crazy. I'm not really sure what's going on. Right. So then she's working this unit and sort of like side note, my brother passed away suddenly from a heart failure the year before. So this is like the one year anniversary of that. She's working a COVID unit. So, and then once Kelby and I knew we had COVID, we're like, Nicole, get your ass to the Finger Lakes. Yeah, yeah. Because she yeah. wasn't able to physically be in the space with anyone that she knew because everyone knew that she was working in this COVID yes. unit. So mm-hmm. then, oh, yeah. And, and these are people yeah. that were not in good shape, right? Yeah. Like 95% of our patients all died because yeah. they didn't know what to do. Yeah. So we're like, get up to the Finger Lakes right now. Mm-hmm. We've had COVID. We've got to be okay for at least a couple months. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You'll heal up here with the yeah. water. So she came. Seaside town. She drove up like exactly. She drove up probably like once every four weeks just nice. to like see Kelby oh, and I and like have good. physical interaction with people. Yes. Well, that's the kind of shit that keeps you sane. Yeah, a hundred percent. In a situation like that, yeah. yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. As as was this shard. Yes, the shard was delicious. This was fantastic. I think we're ready for the cup. Yeah, we're ready. Some red wine. I think we're ready for round three. Yeah, so now we're into a twenty twenty wine. So oh nice. There you go. Speaking of, speaking of, that was was the perfect segue. (laughs) The red zone. (laughs) Yep. So twenty twenty as a vintage was a dream around here, which given everything else was. Just really appreciate it. That's the least expensive. Yeah, that's like it. Thank you, Mother Nature, on this one. Um, just, yeah, perfect picking. We could get out, pick fruit whenever we wanted to. Not a big deal. Um, I actually roped my friend Chuck into being our harvest intern, who's from the cycling world, but had moved up here from D.C. And that was a seasonal job and then started working at Lowe's right before the pandemic. And I was like, Chuck. I know you're not happy at Lowe's. I need help in the cellar. You know about clamps and gaskets. And he was like, yeah, sign me up. I'm down. I know you're not happy at Lowe's. And he'd also already had COVID as well because it was our our COVID pod quite literally took on that name. All of us got it in March. Super early. So then I was also like, hey, you can't give me COVID. I can't lose my sense and taste of smell in the middle of harvest when I need to taste ferments. That's so crazy. You're like, come on down. (laughs) Join us. We didn't get it until what, 2022? It was a long time. Yeah, we didn't, no, because I didn't, 20, I didn't have it before my brother's Before transplant. your brother's, then it was after. So it was 2022. Yeah. Was so we, while. so we dodged it for like, like a if, while. Like if we had it, we didn't know it, but I'm pretty I'm sure I'm pretty sure, yeah, because we were together at that point. So one of us, yeah, so it wasn't until like mid-2022 that we yeah. got COVID for the first time. I was like, man, we finally joined the club. Yeah. Like this is <laughs> now, so. I'm like, now I have antibodies from myself and yeah. not from the shots. <laughs> yeah. We were like three shots deep at that point. Yeah. 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 Oh, jeez. Yep. So this is just a quick note on the Cab Franc. It is a barrel selection. So we had sort of a regular Cab Franc, but we had a few barrels that were just like, these are really pretty. They will become a separate blend. Um, so we don't make it every year. Kind of averages out every other year we do. Oh, yeah. So it's special. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that smells good. I know. It smells so good. And Cab Franc around here, you'll get some green notes, um, but you're not going to get typically the sort of super pyrazine yeah. jalapeno side of things. A lot of that goes back to research that Cornell has done. So Cornell's right in our backyard. Mm-hmm. They're very active in wine and vineyard research. And in really by the late 90s, pieced together that if you leaf pull at a very particular time in the growing season, your pyrazine amount can just be pulled down to the extent that you're getting your nice dried sage 
but you're not getting like fresh yeah. bell pepper, fresh like chomping right. on the lines. Right. Yeah. yeah, not my jam. Right. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so they've done great, great research throughout the years for the industry. Nice. I went there during Riesling Camp for the oh. the mixing. The Up Riesling in Geneva. Mixing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The mixing. That was fun. My Riesling had an awful nose, <laughs> but it tasted great. <laughs> well, there you go. I I was very middle of the road in the contest, which I'm glad because like. I would hate to be the person who ranked the lowest. <laughs> yeah. Like that would just kill me. Yeah. So I'm glad that I was yeah. very average. I yeah. was in the You're average. You're super group. competitive. Yes, yeah, super competitive. So, so you yeah. would not have, yeah, you would have like come back and like done like, another one in some Right, way I'm and like, like, I need to blend again. Yeah. In the middle of the time. night, yeah. she would have done like, it. She broken, done it. pick the lock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like in there, <laughs> open up and like. <laughs> yeah. So, but. That's yeah. who you're dealing with. Yeah. <laughs> So also don't hire me as a YB. <laughs> more, more importantly, you become like the seller troll. That yeah, in the corner, <laughs> just pop out. Yeah. <laughs> like, still here. Love it. Well, this is delicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Tim, really, Tim will make the call for our Cab Franc right about I don't know, about a week from now when we're solidly into into Verasion, knowing the different blocks. We isolate one block more for rosé and one more for red wine. And we do slightly different work, drop a little more fruit in the block that we'll use for red than rosé. Yeah. Um, and that's very much, uh, Tim kind of does that end of things. Cool. Yeah. But nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's a we're team in. effort here. It's a family. Yeah. 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 I love it. Like everyone ch- uh, chips in like a family. We're yeah. Like, we're going to do yeah. this now. But I would it. never pretend, you know, like Tim and I will chit-chat about ideas in the vineyard and this, that, and the other thing, but I would never pretend to know this vineyard in the way that he does. Mm-hmm. was born here yeah mm-hmm. right like they used to have the wine shop right next to their house and Marin and Cameron finally opened one across the way she's like no one day I was giving Tim a bath and someone opened up my door and said Marin I need to buy wine and she was like that's <laughs> it I need a location across the street because yeah. if I want to give my son a bath I'm giving him a bath You're like, and I need like, privacy damn it. <laughs> exactly <laughs> so Tim Love it. just he grew up here he gets it in a way that I certainly understand the vineyard well, but I would never yeah. pretend to understand it on his level. You didn't get baths here as a baby. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So that's the, yeah. <laughs> the defining mark. Yeah. But this is delicious. Lots of like... Well, are there any mm. other fun facts? Anything else you want to highlight about yourself or about the winery or anything else just to end on a really positive note and of course we also just want to thank you for your time yes, and for your thank tour you so much. oh yeah thank you but for coming we out. just want you to kind of have the the final word anything else that we might want to know that our listeners might want to know well you'll see it when you go to seneca falls that well-behaved women seldom make history yes so we'll end there i love it <laughs> oh, oh that's the best you have to come back on the pod <laughs> yes you do you're such a pleasure oh thank you for having me no of course yeah. thank, thank you, you so, so much. much thank you all if you Love this a podcast episode. Make sure to subscribe. Give us all the stars, all the likes, all the reviews. Uh, you could follow us on Instagram at Pouring Over Pages Podcast. Go to our Etsy shop. Get some merch. Um, sign up for our newsletter. Do do all the things to help support us and and keep us going. And like we always do at the end. Cheers. Cheers. Yep.